Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canada's Great War. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. You can also donate by going to buymeacupofcoffee.com slash CraigU. I'll have all of these links in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by, with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you, and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20 plus, you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. On that note, I'd like to say thank you to Darren, who is the sponsor of this episode, who donated to the podcast. And I also want to mention he has a great blog called dragonbite.ca, and that's B-Y-T-E. Currently, he's on an eight-month cross-Canada road trip, and right now he's in British Columbia, and you can follow along through his blog, where he puts up wonderful pictures. And you can also follow along through his Twitter handle. It's Photo Darren. And that's D-A-R-R-E-N. So, dragonbite.ca, remember, B-Y-T-E, and Photo Darren, D-A-R-R-E-N. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok, where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. My username is Bardo37. You can also find weekly videos about Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash CanadianHistoryX. And remember, that's E-H-X. And if you want to find transcripts of every single episode I've ever done, go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And all of these links are in my show notes. Few individuals in the First World War have been as romanticized as the pilots who took to the air. The Flying Aces, as they were known, took a new form of warfare and became icons, celebrities, and heroes. The most famous Flying Ace of them all was of course the Red Baron, but Canada had a large number of Flying Aces who found success when it came to kills. Of the top 12 Flying Aces of the First World War, Canada had four. In this episode, I'm going to look at some of Canada's greatest flying aces, as well as how Canada took to the air. When the First World War began, Sam Hughes, the Minister of Militia and Defence and the subject of a previous episode, would ask England what Canada could do to assist with military aviation. The response was that six experienced pilots were needed immediately. As Canada had only flown its first aircraft five years previous, there was a serious lack of experienced pilots within the country. As a result, Hughes was unable to fill this requirement. On September 16, 1914, the Canadian Aviation Corps was created. It consisted of two officers, one mechanic, and $5,000 to be used to buy an aircraft and have it delivered to Valcartier Camp. The Windsor Star would report, quote, A Canadian Aviation Corps is now in the course of formation at Valcartier, under the direction of E.L. Janney, end quote. The plane would arrive on October 1st and was sent to England, the next day, Don Brophy, a football star McGill, would join the Corps. 
The damp climate quickly caused the plane to deteriorate, and it would never fly. The Canadian Aviation Corps would cease to exist by the end of 1915, but there would still be mentions of a Canadian Aviation Corps well into 1916. In October of that year, the Halifax Evening Mail reported that a Canadian Aviation Corps would still be established, stating, quote, In connection with the government's action in establishing an aviation school and aeroplane factory in Canada, there is to be authorized and is understood a Canadian Aviation Corps, end quote. In 1917, training airfields would open in Canada by the Royal Air Force, where many flying aces would train. The Canadian government would also advance money to the Royal Flying Corps so that an aircraft factory could be opened in Toronto, as was mentioned by the Evening Mail. For Canadians who wanted to fly, they would instead enlist with the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service. Over 20,000 Canadians would volunteer to serve at the service. These branches were under British command, and Canada had little in the way of involvement, federally at least, when it came to military aircraft. When Canadians flew under the branch of the British military, they would still make Canada proud and several of the Canadian pilots would find fame for themselves back home. But flying was dangerous, and the average lifespan of a First World War pilot was said to be only two months. Nonetheless, they became arguably the most famous soldiers of the war, remembered to this day. I saw that early in the morning. One of our observation planes was trying to get home, and he was being pursued by a, a Fritzy fighter who had apparently about three times the speed that our fellow had. And he was zooming in and around him and up and down, everything, they shooting at him all the time. And this was taking place no more than, oh, 500 yards in the air. And eventually, our plane came down, apparently out of control, but it pancaked to, to a little landing. And within, oh, I thought, a couple hundred yards from me. So I made a a dash over to see what I could find, but perhaps to get some souvenirs. And out stepped two young British officers. I swear they weren't more than 17 years of age. They looked so youthful. They stepped there. One fellow said to the other, I say, he said, he was jolly hot stuff, wasn't he? And he marched off laughing. <laughs> Talking about your nerve. <laughs> So let's look at some of these amazing pilots. William Claxton Born in Gladstone, Manitoba on June 1st, 1899, Claxton would enlist to fight in the First World War as a member of the Royal Flying Corps on his 18th birthday. After completing his pilot training, he was sent to the Western Front. In short order, he became the most successful airman of his squadron, claiming 37 victories in the air in only 79 days. This was accomplished by shooting down several planes in a single day, multiple times. From June 27th to June 30th, he shot down 13 aircraft, and on June 30th alone, he shot down 6. Due to his freewheeling style in the air, his planes were often the worst for wear. He would often return back to base with his plane shot up, and on at least one occasion, crash-landed. On August 17th, 1918, Claxton was shot down behind enemy lines, suffering from serious head wound, but his life was saved by a German doctor who performed cranial surgery. The Kingston Weekly British Whig would report, quote, With 33 planes to his credit in less than four months, Flight Lieutenant William Claxton is now a prisoner of war, end quote. Captain Frederick McCall would say of Claxton, quote, I doubt if there is an airman living who can touch my little fighting partner's record, for within four months in France, he officially downed no fewer than 33 enemy planes of all sorts, end quote. 
Over the course of his flying career, Claxton was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross with Bar and the Distinguished Service Order. Claxton remained a prisoner of war until the end of the war, and he would return home to Canada in December of 1918. He spent the rest of his life working as a financial editor for the Toronto Telegram and as the manager of the Claxton Financial Digest. He would die on September 28, 1967. Frederick McCall Born in Vernon, British Columbia, McCall moved to Calgary as a young man when he was 10 in 1906. He would enlist in February 1916 and by 1917 had transferred to the Royal Flying Corps. After his military training, he would shoot down his first German aircraft and be awarded the Military Cross for it. After his fourth kill in the air, he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. In June of 1918, he shot down four aircraft and two days later shot down another five, including four in the morning. For his action, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Order. The Montreal Gazette would report, quote, He drove down two enemy machines out of control and later engaged two hostile two-seater planes, one of them crashing. He has always displayed the greatest gallantry and set a high example to his squadron, end quote. In August 1918, he was ordered back to England and then to Canada after contracting an illness. The war would end while he was recovering. After the war, McCall became a stunt flyer. On July 5, 1919, he would crash land his plane onto a merry-go-round at the Calgary Stampede when his engine failed. He and his two passengers, who were young kids, would be uninjured in the incident. McCall would say, quote, Right ahead of me was the racetrack around which the racing motorcars were going then at full speed. To land there was impossible without a terrible accident. On the other hand, farther ahead was another bunch of wires over the motor dome. I saw that, and in the short space I had to go, it would be impossible to put on the power sufficiently to cause the machine to rise and clear those wires. I saw no place to land except in the crowd in the midway or on top of the merry-go-round. It was that or nothing, so I cut the power completely and I let her drop. It all happened in a second. End quote. In 1920, he would found McCall Aero Corporation Limited, which pioneered aircraft service in the region. In 1928, he founded Great Western Airways, and in 1929, under his own company, he flew a doctor to the Skiff oil field to help two injured workers. When the Second World War began, McCall became a squadron leader at various Canadian bases, and he would die on January 22, 1949, at the age of 52. In 1939, the Calgary International Airport was named for him, although that name is no longer used at the new airport. Calgary McCall, a provincial riding, has also been named for him, as is McCall Way in Calgary. Lloyd Bredner Born on July 14, 1894 in Carleton Place, Ontario, Bredner earned his wings at the Wright Flying School and joined the British Royal Naval Air Service on December 28, 1915. Flying in the No. 3 Naval Squadron during the First World War, he would earn the Distinguished Flying Cross on May 23, 1917. He was awarded the medal for shooting down four planes on April 6, 1917. On the morning of April 11, he would shoot down another plane. He would meet the King of England in May when he was presented as the commander of the squadron who brought down the most planes with the smallest number of casualties. One of his most notable events in the war was when he took a pilot as prisoner. He had engaged in combat with him at 10,000 feet, firing 190 rounds into his engines and forcing him to land. Bredner would write home and describe it, quote, He was forced to land in a field and crashed pretty well. I landed in a field close by and ran over to where the Hun came down. There was a pilot and two observers. They couldn't speak English, so I couldn't talk to them. I went back to the burning machine and cut the cross off it. I tell you there's a whole lot more satisfaction bringing them down on our side of the line than on theirs. End quote. By the end of the war, he was a major in the Royal Air Force. 
1920, he became squadron leader and transferred to the Royal Canadian Air Force when it was formed in 1924. In 1922, he became the controller of civil aviation and then commanded Camp Borden from 1924 to 1925. From 1928 to 1932, he was the director of the Royal Canadian Air Force. In 1940, he became the chief of air staff and was promoted to air marshal on November 19, 1941. In January of 1944, he was made the Air Officer Commanding-in-Chief of the RCAF overseas. One year later, he was the Air Chief Marshal, becoming the first Canadian to hold that rank. On March 14, 1952, Bredner would pass away in Boston. In his life, he was awarded the Military Cross, the Order of the White Lion, the Legion of Merit, and the Commander of the Legion of Honor, among other medals. Raymond Collishaw one of the greatest pilots in Canadian history, Collishaw was born in Nanaimo, B.C. on November 22, 1893. Growing up in Nanaimo, he spent time in Victoria and Oakland as he followed his father while gold mining. At the age of 15, he would join the Canadian Fisheries Protection Services as a cabin boy, where he would remain for seven years, eventually becoming a first officer. When the First World War began in 1914, he was originally going to join the Royal Navy because of his experience on the sea but due to not hearing back from them over his enlistment, he instead went to the Royal Naval Air Service. He would train at the Curtis Aviation School and would travel to England in January of 1916. On August 2, 1916, he was deployed to France, but it was not until October 2, 1916, that he had his first confirmed victories. Spotted by six German scouts, they opened fire on him. He would state later, quote, The affair opened with a stream of bullets that went right into my goggles, sending powdered glass into my eyes. I was hardly able to see it all and could do little more than fling my strutter about, hoping it would hang together in one piece." End quote. He was able to shoot down one German pilot during the air battle. Due to his injuries to his eyes, he could not see his compass and he used the sun to position himself to travel back to Allied lines. He would finally see an aerodrome and he brought the plane down in for a landing. He would write, quote, I began taxiing toward the number of hangars in front of which stood a line of aircraft. Something about the machine struck me as odd, but it was not until I got quite close to them that I understood why. Each one bore the Iron Cross markings of the German Air Force, and I had put down at a German field. End quote. He quickly took off from the aerodrome and finally found his way to a French aerodrome where he received medical treatment for his eyes. Collishaw would eventually transfer to the number 10 squadron, known as the Black Flight, which was made up of Canadians flying the Sopwith triplane. Collishaw's plane was the Black Maria, and this fighting group would be highly successful shooting down 87 enemy aircraft from May to July 1917. Of those, Collishaw shot down 27 German planes and was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross and the Distinguished Service Order. After taking a three-month leave, he would be posted with the Seaplane Defense Squadron and was made commander of the unit. After the war, he emerged as one of the top pilots of the conflict and the second highest scoring Canadian pilot of the war with 60 air victories. In 1919, Collishaw was one of the officers selected for a permanent commission with the Royal Air Force, and as a pilot with them, he would fight the Bolsheviks during the Russian Civil War. From 1924 to 1925, he would attend the Royal Air Force Staff College, and by the time the 1930s came along, Collishaw was no longer the brash pilot he had been during the First World War but a mature and senior officer with a great deal of experience. When the Second World War began, he would become the Royal Air Force Operational Commander in Egypt. He would use his forces to harass the Italians without weakening British strength in the Western Desert. His squadrons played a major role in Operation Compass, which was launched on December 9, 1940. He would write in his memoirs, quote, 
I feel that my days of command in North Africa, when we had to depend on superior strategy, deception, and fighting spirit, faced with a numerically superior enemy, represented by far my best effort. Yet, if I am known at all to any of my fellow Canadians, it is through more carefree days when I was a fighter pilot with the limited responsibilities of a flight commander in a squadron over France. End quote. In July 1941, he went back to the United Kingdom, and he would eventually leave the Royal Air Force in 1943. He would retire due to medical reasons that forced him to spend time in the hospital. In 1945, he returned to Canada and embarked on a career in the mining industry. He would also become a historian of the First World War in the air and work to unravel the mystery of who shot down the Red Baron. He would die on September 28, 1976. But generally speaking, showmanship or any trickery didn't enter into the field at all. It was straightforward uh, dueling. Uh, and the best man, the luckiest man, won. There's more luck than it was anything else. I always think of myself as most successful as a squadron commander. And indeed, uh, in the first war, I commanded three fighter squadrons successively, which I think no one else in the world did at that time. In the Second World War, I was the commander of the Royal Air Force Desert Air Force in Africa, in the African campaign for two and a half years. I took part in ten small wars between the two big ones. And we found out in those small wars that a pilot can get killed just as dead in a small war as he can in the big war. Donald McLaren Born in Ottawa on May 28, 1893, but raised in Calgary, McLaren would move to Montreal in 1912 to study at McGill. After becoming ill, he moved to Vancouver and then operated a fur trading post with his brother and father near Peace River, Alberta. While there, he would learn to speak Cree. In 1916, after the fort closed, Donald joined the Royal Flying Corps and trained at Camp Borden. On November 23, 1917, he was sent to France and joined the No. 46 Squadron. In February 1918, he would shoot down his first German plane. On March 21, 1918, he destroyed a railway gun with bombs, shot down two Germans, and shot down a balloon. For this action, he was awarded the Military Cross. After this, McLaren would fall ill with Spanish flu and was then hit with trench fever. In September 1918, he took over command of the squadron after the previous commander was killed in action. McLaren was able to avoid being injured while in the air, but in October 1918, he would break his leg while wrestling with a friend at the squadron headquarters. He returned to England and was then sent to Canada. For his leadership of the squadron during the last few months of the First World War, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Order. In all, he shot down 54 German aircraft, despite not seeing his first combat until the last year of the war. When the Royal Canadian Air Force was formed, he would join and was put in command of the Canadian pilots in England. It was under his command that the 112 aircraft were granted by the British Air Ministry to form the Royal Canadian Air Force. After leaving the RCAF in 1924, he would form Pacific Airways, and he would pass away on July 4, 1988. William Billy Bishop Bishop is arguably the greatest fighter pilot in Canadian history, who had 72 confirmed kills in the air. That high number put him third among all pilots during the war and only eight back from the legendary Red Baron. There was a reason they called him Hell's Handmaiden. Born in Owen Sound, Ontario, Bishop was never one for team sports, so the life of a pilot suited him perfectly. At the age of 15, he developed a keen interest in aviation and would build an aircraft out of cardboard and string. He took that plane off the roof of his third-story house and luckily escaped injury. 
Two years later, he entered the Royal Military College of Canada and promptly failed out after being caught cheating in his first year. Upon the outbreak of the First World War, Bishop enlisted in the Cavalry Regiment, but became sick and missed shipping out. He then joined a mounted infantry unit where he became known for his ability with a gun and his almost superhuman eyesight. Fighting in France in 1915 and hating the trenches, he transferred to the Royal Flying Corps as an observer, not a pilot. By 1916, though, he was training as a pilot in England, and he would get his wings in November of that year. With a no-holds-barred style of fighting, he would be the first to dive into the fighting and take enemy fighters down. He even took on the Red Baron and lived to tell the tale. On June 2, 1917, he took off on a solo mission to take out an aerodrome, which he did by shooting down four aircraft and destroying many more on the ground. He would be awarded the Victoria Cross for his efforts. The Evening Mail reported, quote, Captain Bishop first flew to the enemy aerodrome, finding no enemy machine about, he flew to another. Seven machines with their engines running were on the ground. He attacked these from a height of 50 feet, killing one of the mechanics, end quote. One of the planes took off the ground, but he was able to shoot it down by firing 15 rounds into it. A second machine took off and he shot that down with 150 rounds, crashing it into a tree. The Evening Mail reported, quote, Two more machines rose from the aerodrome, one of which he engaged at a height of a thousand feet, sending it crashing to the ground. He then emptied a whole drum of cartridges into the fourth hostile machine and flew back to his station. Quote. Bishop would return to Canada as a hero in 1917, where he got married to his longtime fiancée, Margaret. Heading back to England in April of 1918, he was promoted to major and given command of the Flying Foxes. He was able to choose his own pilots and they quickly took to the air. From May 30th to June 1st alone, Bishop took out six enemy airplanes. Unfortunately, the Canadian government began to worry about morale if Bishop were to die and he was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and was sent back home just as the war ended. Following the war, Bishop would move to Britain where he eventually became Chairman of British Airlines. After the crash of the stock market in 1929, he returned to Canada. In 1936, he was made the first Air Vice Marshal in Canadian history and he was promoted to Air Marshal upon the outbreak of the Second World War. He would help implement the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan successfully, which trained 167,000 men in Canada to fly. Bishop would die on September 11, 1956 at the age of 62. The Windsor Star would write of him, quote, Billy Bishop was one of the first master air fighters of all the warring nations in the World War I who survived the conflict, end quote. It would continue speaking of how his life changed as he became more known, stating, quote, Fame, wealth, and social position had made little change in Billy Bishop. The honorary air marshal and substantial citizen of 1940 had the same cheery, affable manner as the unknown lieutenant who started shooting down Germans out of the skies in 1917. Today, several streets, buildings, and parks are named after Bishop, and Mount Bishop in the Canadian Rockies is named for him as well. William Barker The most decorated serviceman in Canadian history got a start on November 30, 1894, when he was born in Dauphin, Manitoba. Growing up riding horses and working in a sawmill, he developed the ability to make a shot from nearly any distance, even while riding a horse. As a young man, he watched pioneer aviators fly farm exhibits, and that inspired him to eventually become a pilot himself. At the outbreak of the First World War, Barker enlisted with the first Canadian mounted rifles. Sent to England in June of 1915 and to France in September, he served as a gunner until he transferred to the Royal Flying Corps in March of 1916. Serving first as an observer, he quickly set himself apart for his ability with a gun in the air. On November 15th, he and his pilot helped to break up a German offensive, and he was awarded the Military Cross for his efforts. 
In January of 1917, he began training as a pilot and quickly earned his wings. During his time as a pilot, he would also put a second bar on his military cross after he was wounded in the air in August of 1917. He served briefly as an instructor before coming back and fighting on the Italian front in 1917 and 1918. While serving in France to learn the latest combat techniques on October 27, 1918, he attacked a Rumpier two-seater and took on 15 more enemy machines where he was shot three times in the leg and had his left elbow shot off. Even with his injuries, he managed to shoot down three more enemy planes and he would crash land near the Allied front line and would hang on to life until January of 1919. The Ottawa citizen would write, quote, After a short fight, the enemy broke up in the air. Another German machine attacked and he was wounded in the right thigh but managed to shoot the German down in flames. A large formation of German machines then attacked Major Barker. He was wounded in the left thigh but drove down two of the enemy. Major Barker lost consciousness for a few minutes but recovered when he was again attacked. End quote. He was awarded the Victoria Cross for his efforts, and he would finish the war with 50 kills, and be awarded the Distinguished Service Order and Bar, the Military Cross and Two Bars, the Silver Medals for Military Valor, and more. Following the war, he became the director of the RCAF and was promoted to colonel. He continued to suffer from the injuries during that iconic air battle, and he had limited left arm movement and his legs were permanently damaged. He would die in 1930 after losing control of his plane during a demonstration flight near Ottawa. The Windsor Star would write, quote, Colonel Barker died, perhaps as he would have desired to die, serving his country even in peace and advancing the cause of aviation. He met his death in an airplane which he was testing, a hazardous task for even the most skillful flyer. End quote. His funeral was the largest state event in the history of Toronto to the time. An honor guard of 2,000 soldiers were on hand, and the cortege stretched for a mile and a half. The Windsor Star would report, quote, Colonel Barker is dead, a victim of the art which he had, during and since the war, helped to make safer, but he has left an example and a memory that can never be erased from the minds of Canadians. End quote. This is Lieutenant Colonel William Barker, and to many Canadians, he is a forgotten hero. Barker was a World War I flying ace and the country's most decorated airman. Despite those honors, however, few people know about his life. Well, that's changing now. A recent biography, together with the efforts of some federal politicians, mean that Barker may get the recognition he deserves. With us now in Vancouver is Wayne Ralph, who wrote the biography about William Barker, and in Winnipeg, Inky Mark, the reform MP from Dauphin Swan River. Mr. Ralph, tell us about William Barker. Who was the man that Billy Bishop called the deadliest air fighter who ever lived? Well, he was a working class kid who was born on the frontier of Manitoba in 1894. When he was 20 years old, he uh, joined the military to go to war as a machine gunner, but in 1916, he transferred to the Royal Flying Corps. Mm -hmm. During the war, he flew more than 900 hours in combat, probably one of the highest totals of the war for wow. any flyer. Uh -huh. He uh, was awarded seven decorations, and while flying the Sopwith Camel, he uh, shot down 46 enemy aircraft. He's probably best remembered for winning the Victoria Cross just two weeks before the war ended. Yes. He was wounded in that combat. He shot down four aircraft but uh, of course uh, was lucky to be alive. And uh, when he got his medals from King George V, um, the king said, I've never given six medals to one man before. Now, how is it then, Mr. Ralph, that we in Canada have forgotten who William Barker was? Well, I guess I would retort by saying, who else do you remember besides Billy Bishop? <laughs> if you remember Barker and Bishop, can you remember the other two high-scoring aces? Their yes. names are Collishaw and McLaren. Yes. But of course, really, we only remember Bishop. 
So but, Barker is forgotten and Bishop is remembered, and probably there's some social class aspect to that. Well, let me let me bring in uh, Inky Mark here, Mr. Mark. Is Billy Bishop is is William Barker forgotten in Dauphin, Manitoba? Well, he's not really forgotten in Dauphin, Manitoba. I know he is in Canada. Billy Barker was born in Dauphin. That's his, where his roots are. And uh, and since 1996, I've been uh, uh, hounding the government to recognize him and put him where he should be as a hero in this country. And what has happened when you've gone to places like Heritage Canada to try and get some recognition? Well, when I first approached them, they uh, felt that he had an unremarkable post-war career, which is total nonsense. Yeah, you may not know he was the first president of the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs. Right. He was also the... Uh, the first acting director of the RCAF uh, formed in 1924. Now, he died in Ottawa, didn't he? Yes, he did. And, and tell us about his funeral. What happened in Toronto? Well, in, at his funeral, there was, uh, you know, a mile-long uh, cortege. Uh, uh, you know, uh, 2,000 troops were involved and over 50,000 people lined the streets at his funeral. So there was an enormous outpouring then from the public who, who remembered him and loved him and recognized him for what he had done. Well, there certainly was, and uh, I think today we need people like uh, uh, Billy Barker. We need to uh, to remember uh, the history of this country and people like Billy Barker that keep this country together. Wap May A legendary pilot in Canadian history, Wap May, born Wilfred May, was born in 1896 in Carberry, Manitoba, and he would go on to gain fame during the First World War and beyond. Enlisting in the Army in February of 1916, he quickly rose through the ranks and was a gunnery instructor before the end of the year. In 1917, after being shipped to England, he applied to join the Royal Flying Corps. Things, though, did not get off to a great start. His first flight resulted in the destruction of not only his own aircraft, but that of another one. Amazingly, he was accepted as a pilot and began training in London. He would earn his wings in February of 1918, and he would fight his first aerial combat on April 20th of that year. On April 21st, he was sent out on patrol and his squadron was soon attacked by German fighters. During the fight, he saw a plane circling above and he decided to pursue it and launch an attack. The plane fled into the middle of the fight and after his machine guns jammed, he dove out of combat. Little did Bishop know that plane was flown by a man named Wolfram, the cousin of the Red Baron. Upon seeing his cousin being attacked, the Red Baron flew into the fight to rescue him and began chasing May. Roy Brown saw the Red Baron attacking May and dove into the fight. By the end of it, the Red Baron was shot down and no one knows if it was Brown or May who shot him down. There's also speculation that it was Australian troops on the ground. After his award the Distinguished Flying Cross, the London Gazette reported, quote, This officer has carried out numerous offensive and low-bombing patrols, proving himself on all occasions a bold and daring pilot. His keenness and disregard of personal danger is worthy of the highest praise. End quote. Following the war, May returned to Canada and opened Canada's first airfield near Edmonton. He also created one of the first barnstorming companies in the world. In 1919, he was hired by the Edmonton police chief to find a man who was wanted in the murder of a police officer. May flew the chief to Edson nearby, and they caught the man soon after in what is considered to be one of the first aerial manhunts. In December of 1928, an employee of the Hudson's Bay Company in Little Red River, Alberta, became ill. It was found that he had diphtheria and he needed medicine immediately. There were no roads to the location at the time, and May, along with Vic Horner, were asked to deliver the medicine by plane. As they were flying, they were forced to land when the baggage compartment, which had a charcoal heater in it, caught fire. The serum was stored in there, and they were forced to throw the heater out and place the serum in their pockets, armpits, and groin to keep it warm. After flying for three hours that day, the men landed at McClellan as it was becoming too dark to continue flying. 
Edmonton Bolton reported, quote, The overnight stop was made in McClellan not only to refuel but also for the comfort as both May and Horner were suffering from the cold and could not have continued on to Peace River last night without first landing and getting warmed up. It was then too late to attempt a landing at Peace as WAP, who had previous experience here and knew the difficulties of poor visibility. End quote. In regards to landing at Peace River, May would later state, quote, If you people here only fully realize the strain it puts on flying men to have to try and dodge the steel wires of the government telegraphs crossing the river and with the railway bridge a mile below and hemmed in by immense hills, you would get behind a movement to have those steel wires transferred to the bridge. End quote. After getting more fuel in Peace River the next day, the two men continued their flight and landed in Fort Vermilion at 3 p.m., just as a group from Little Red River were arriving. The drugs were quickly handed over to Dr. Hammond, and people in Fort Vermilion were inoculated. This was done thanks to a dance that was held that night. When someone entered into the dance hall, the RCMP required them to have an injection of the serum. Both Little Red River and Fort Vermilion would receive the inoculations, and there would be only one death. May was not done making a name for himself yet, though. In 1932, he was involved in the manhunt of the Mad Trapper. May was hired to see if he could find where the trapper had gone after killing an RCMP officer. He would find footprints leading off over a frozen lake. The Mad Trapper, Albert Johnson, was soon engaged by the RCMP and killed in the firefight. May flew down and landed next to an officer who had been injured, put him in his plane, and flew him 201 kilometers to a doctor. This action saved the life of the officer. Years later, May would state, quote, I was up overhead when RCMP inspector Alex Eames was coming around the bend of the river. Johnson tried to run up the bank to get out of his way, but he didn't have his snowshoes on and he couldn't make it, so he came back into the center of the river, dug himself into the snow, and the fight started. We were up on top, circling, watching the fight and taking pictures of it, end quote. In 1935, May would become an officer of the Order of the British Empire with the rank of officer in the Civil Division. During the Second World War, May would train pilots in the British government and serve as commander of a flight school near Edmonton. During this time, he also assisted the United States with pararescue and was awarded the Medal of Freedom in 1947 for his efforts. May would say later, quote, It was hard to get at them and they could not land. That was what gave us the idea for the rescue squad. A fellow said he had done all kinds of parachute jumps and I wanted to see him put on a demonstration. He, and four besides himself, jumped. Not one of them had jumped before. We kicked them out over the airport. One guy landed on the wing of an aeroplane and went right through. The other guy landed on the American officer's mess and another guy landed flat-footed on the runway. It was not very good. We tried it again. The next guy came down wrong. One landed on his fanny on a pile of rocks. He bounced about six feet. I got nervous and thought I would not like to see these fellows jump in the bush. We talked to the Americans. There was a very fine fellow by the name of Colonel Nightingale. He arranged that we send some people to Missoula, Montana, where they train smoke jumpers. We got these people started, and then we got them organized and trained more people and used them until the end of the war. The Air Force thought so much of them, they took over our complete unit and operated as the search and rescue unit. End quote. May would pass away while hiking on June 21, 1952. The Victoria Times columnist reported, quote, Long before Charles Augustus Lindbergh made history on a solo Atlantic hop, Watt May was beginning to be a legend in the Book of Mercy Flights. To the young people of Canada, he typified the spirit of aviation, which has become a national tradition. End quote. Mayfield, a neighborhood in Edmonton, is named in his honor. In addition, a rock on the south slope of the Endurance Crater on Mars was named Watt May in honor of him, and the Watt May Fault Zone, which is west of Hudson's Bay, along the Watt May River, is named for him. 
Wapmay was a bush pilot. He didn't need to strut. He flew by the seat of his pants, and he flew everything from mail to medicine to miners into the north back in the 20s and 30s. But Wap got his start as a World War I flying ace, and as we'll hear, even claims to have had a run-in with the Red Baron. I looked around, and uh, this uh, red triplane was on my tail. If I had known it was Rick Stoven, I'd probably just died in my tracks because he was the best shot, I guess, in the German army, but he didn't hit me because I was slipping and sliding all over this guy, and he just couldn't make it. That was Wap May talking to a group of Boy Scouts back in 1952. This morning, Wap's own son, Danny, has just landed in our studio. Danny, let's get that name cleared up. Why, why was he called that? Well, it was kind of funny. Um, I don't know when it actually happened. It was certainly prior to the First War, but um, as a young man was over visiting a cousin, and um, the cousin was asked to say hello to your Uncle Wilfred, and she came out with Uncle Wappy, and it got shortened to Wap and stuck, and... Uh, it's as simple as that. Okay. And he really fought the Baron Manfred von Richthofen? Yeah, he ran away from him anyway and did it successfully. He's the only one that ever did. Well, that's a pretty good start. Yeah. What does a flying ace do when the war is over? Did he go right in and, 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 and uh, get a job flying somewhere? Well, he came back, as a lot of them did. Uh, Freddie McCall was another one from Calgary that did perhaps the same thing. Um, came back to home as a hero, dressed up in a... I think it was kind of like an acting job in a way... Um, pictures I've seen with long white scarves and helmets and goggles and, and the bit, and you uh, got an airplane and you went flying and took people for rides, had a great time. Um, it's called barnstorming, was, was the process. How much did he charge? I think that varied from 5 to $10 um, per person. I, I've heard people tell me they paid by weight. I've other had people tell me they paid by uh, the amount of time in the air, sort of $5 or a dollar a minute or $5 for five minutes, that kind of thing. And did he get involved with things like wing walkers and all that sort of thing? He uh, he knew some that were here. Um, a fellow by the name of Locklear was in uh, Canada, and, and Daddy helped him something in his act anyway. I don't know what he was doing, but he didn't. Uh, I don't think he ever fly for them or do any of that himself. Would you call your dad a showbiz type? Not really, no, but that was a... I think a lot of the pilots that came back from the war did was that, that kind of... I, I enjoy the, um, the sort of effect of this, uh, this fun type of era. It was a very short-lived thing, two or three years at the most. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at the Flying Aces of the First World War. Next week, we're looking at life in internment camps. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray.
Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Virtual War Memorial, Weekly British Wig, Wikipedia, Halifax Evening Star, Owen Sound Sun-Times, Windsor Star, Victorian Times Colonist, and Maclean the Magazine. Thanks, we'll see you again next time.